Wasn't that terrific hearing the kids sing? There's something about that. Thank you to Brighton and to Darren for putting that together. Well, turn with me to Luke chapter 1. And if you have these wonderful little uh, bookmarks in your Bible like mine, I would encourage you to put one there because we're going to go back and forth between Luke 1 and 2 and then the Old Testament a number of times. And we're doing significant enough passages that I want to have you visually see them. So Luke chapter 1 and just keep a bookmark of some sort there. I think it's interesting that even non-Christians will pick up their Bibles and they'll read the story of the birth of Christ and uh, often go to Luke because the best details we have are in Luke's gospel. And for a variety of reasons, the, the story of the birth of Christ will warm the hearts even of those who don't believe in Christ. And the irony is, is that the birth of Christ warms their hearts even as they look to the story of the one against whom they are rebelling in that moment that they're in rebellion against Christ and yet they're warmed by his birth. And the meanings of the birth of Christ that are forced upon this event are creative to say the least. Some say that Christ came to bring peace to the earth. Jesus said, do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have come not to bring peace, but a sword. And what was the sword? He brought the, the sword, the dividing sword of the preaching of the gospel of Christ, the kingdom of Message because it divides those who believe from those who unbelieve, who don't believe. Others say that Jesus came to be an example of a good man. But Jesus said in Luke 18, verse 19, Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Now, of course, Jesus is good, but that description of him tends to deny his deity. So some say he came to bring peace. Some say he came to be an example of a good man. Still others say that Jesus came to bring social justice to the earth, such as ending poverty. But Jesus said in John 12, 8, for the poor you will always have with you, but you do not always have me. Most people don't have a context for the birth of Christ. They don't know why it happened. They don't understand the significance of the second person of the triune God coming down to earth, not like a man, but as a man, fully God, fully man. And for Gentiles like us who didn't necessarily grow up in the synagogue, we didn't grow up learning and reading the Old Testament scriptures, not to the level that that a Jew would in Jesus' day. This is a particularly challenging problem for us. But we Gentiles, we've been given a gift. This gift is two other Gentiles. One is named Theophilus. He is the Roman governor that we spoke of last week who has been converted to Christ, but he wanted assurance of what he believed. He wanted assurance that as a Gentile, he could take part in the salvation of Christ. And then there's another Gentile named Luke, and he's a Gentile doctor, very likely from Syrian Antioch. That's what Eusebius, uh, the historian, says. He was a ministry companion to the Apostle Paul. He's the human author of the inspired text that we know as the Gospel of Luke and the Acts of the Apostles. And these two volumes together were written to Theophilus. As Luke says in Luke 1, 4, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. And so Luke, the meticulous doctor that he was, he placed in this inspired text, superintended by the Holy Spirit, the inspired birth songs of Christ. Three human songs and one angelic song or poem And in these three human songs, one by Mary, the mother of Jesus, one by Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, and one by Simeon, an old Jewish man waiting for the coming of the Messiah, we really see a primer. We see a teaching guide as to what we need to know beyond the manger. It sets the birth of Christ in its proper context. What is the real significance of the coming of Christ to earth as a baby? And we've identified some themes that are in all or nearly all of these songs. And they're themes that really have been developed by the Holy Spirit in these songs for a purpose. And that is to point us back to the Old Testament, to point us to our our context, our foundation. And what is it that's so unique about these songs? What's unique about them is that they are almost entirely unoriginal. They're made up almost completely of either quotes or allusions, quotations, and references to the Old Testament. And so they're really a big help to us who are Gentiles. Now, last week we identified the first two themes, not in any order of importance. We saw, first of all, the theme of the glory of God. 
that the Bible tells the story of God bringing glory to himself and the ultimate expression of his glory is the revealing of the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God. And then we saw the theme of the Abrahamic covenant, that the birth of Christ is the outworking, it's the continued fulfillment of God's promises to Abraham as given in Genesis, that, that God promised to bless Abram He promised to give him a nation from his own body and that all nations would be blessed through a singular seed, one man, one offspring from Abraham. And so today we'll continue with that and we'll identify four more themes in these three songs to help us understand the significance of the birth of Christ or as we've called the series, What You Must Know Beyond the Manger. And so just to re-familiarize ourselves with these three songs, look with me at Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 46. I won't set the context for you again. We did this last time. Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 46. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. And now I'm contending that we take these three songs as a unit, that they they feed off of each other. So beginning in verse 67, and his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit. This is the father of John the Baptist prior to his birth or right at his birth, rather. And he prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. And then we have the most humble probably in a, in, of means and position of all three. Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 27, we see old Simeon the righteous man waiting for Messiah. Verse 27, And he came in the spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus, Jesus would have been 40 days old, to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. Well, we've identified the glory of God and the Abrahamic covenant as major themes in these songs. Let's look at the third theme and this one is pretty obvious to us, and that is the theme of Israel. The theme of Israel. And this is important for the Gentile to understand that God's plan for the world is worked out through his chosen nation of Israel. Mary confirms that the coming of Christ is first for Israel. She says in verse 54, he has helped his servant Israel. Zechariah confirms that the coming of Christ is first for Israel. Verse 68 of chapter 1. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. In verse 72, he says, To show mercy promised to our fathers, to our Jewish fathers. And in verse 77, to give knowledge of salvation to his people. Now, we can't make the exegetical and theological mistake of just lumping Gentiles in somehow as the new Israel That's not the case. Simeon doesn't do that. 
Chapter 2, verse 32, he says that Jesus will be, quote, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and for your glory to your people Israel. So Simeon makes a distinction. And all three of these songs hold out hope for Israel as a nation. That's very interesting because, of course, Israel will ultimately crucify Christ and they will be set aside for a time. But these three songs tell us, they prove to us, they give us hope, they give us assurance that God still intends to keep all the national promises that he's given to Israel in the Old Testament. Why? Because they're based in, they're founded in the Abrahamic covenant. Well, I want to key in on Mary's specific proclamation in chapter 1, verse 54, that God has helped his servant Israel. He's helped his servant Israel. Now, there's an interpretive issue to consider here. It's kind of a side note. Is Mary referring to the Israel as a nation or to an individual named Israel? The question can be answered in the book which inspired verse 54, rather, and that is the book of Isaiah. So if you keep your bookmark there in Luke chapter 1, turn with me to Isaiah 49. Isaiah 49. By the way, a little side note, middle of January, I'm going to start preaching again in Isaiah, and we'll start in chapter 49 where we left off in the spring. We'll do that on Sunday nights. But Isaiah 49 begins the story of the servant of the Lord as told in Isaiah 49 through 55. And in this opening section, we see the servant of the Lord mentioned and given a name. Isaiah chapter 49, verse 3. And he said to me, you are my servant Israel in whom I will be glorified. So who is this person or nation that God is calling Israel? Well, verse 1 gives us a clue. Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother, he named my name. That seems to speak of an individual. Verse 5, and now the Lord says, he who formed me from the womb to be his servant. That seems to speak of an individual. But could it be the nation of Israel? No, it couldn't. Because the rest of verse 5 makes a distinction. Now the Lord says, he who formed me from the womb to be his servant to bring Jacob back to him and that Israel might be gathered to him for I am honored in the eyes of the Lord and my God has become my strength. So there's a distinction. This is an individual. And I think that's important to remember that Israel was the name of an individual before it was ever the name of a nation. Israel was God's new name for Jacob, you recall. And so in keeping with the messianic, prophetic, literary context of all of Isaiah 49 through 55, this servant who is nicknamed Israel is not the nation, but this is Christ himself. This is an individual. So the question is, is Mary in Luke 154 speaking of Jesus himself when she says he has helped his servant Israel? Well, I think we can eliminate that possibility by process of elimination because it wouldn't make sense because she would be saying in this song that God helped Jesus by bringing Jesus. And that doesn't make any logical sense. So what text is Mary referring to? Almost certainly she's referring to an earlier text in Isaiah. Go backwards with me to Isaiah 44. Isaiah chapter 44. And in this section of Isaiah, beginning in verse 6, The Lord is asserting himself as the only true and only living God. In verse 6, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me there is no God. Who is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and set it before me. Since I appointed an ancient people, let them declare what is to come and what will happen. Fear not, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from of old and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? There is no rock. I know not any. This is, those three verses are an education in theology proper. If I could put it this way, the, the Bible is devastatingly monotheistic. There is one true God, one living God. And then God compares himself to the idols to the worship of anything else besides him. In verses uh, 6 through 11, or 9 through 11, rather, God condemns all who make idols. He says, how dare you make idols? In verse 12, God mocks all those who make idols. And he gives this funny little story. He says, here's what you guys do. You go and you cut down a tree, and then you cut it in half. And with half of it, you, you split up some firewood, and you heat up a fire, and you make your dinner, and you eat it. 
And then with the other half, you carve an idol and then you fall down before it and worship it. Doesn't make any sense. And he, he mocks them. Verse 17, and the rest of it, he makes into a god his idol and falls down and worships it. He prays to it and says, deliver me for you are my God. I mean, what happens if he got it wrong and he made the firewood out of the God and the God out of the firewood? I mean, what if he really messed up here? And God's pointing out how ridiculous that is. And then in verses 18 through 20, God confirms the doctrine of the total depravity of man. Verse 18, they know not, nor do they discern, for he has shut their eyes so they cannot see and their hearts so they cannot understand. But remember the context of all of Isaiah, particularly from chapter 40 on. God is giving hope to the Jewish exiles in Babylon that Yahweh is the living God. And the living God will not forget his people Israel. He's giving them hope for their nation and for their future. And he says in verse 21, Remember these things, O Jacob and Israel, for you are my servant. I formed you. You are my servant. O Israel, you will not be forgotten by me. And he reminds them that they're not like the hopeless men who make their idols out of an oak tree or something. They're not like these lost people They're to be filled with optimism and courage and faith because their God is the God of the saved. And here is God's amazing guarantee in verse 22. I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like a mist. Return to me for I have redeemed you. Listen, grammatically return to me is not a wish. It's not a hope. It's not begging. It is an imperative. It means you will return to me. You will repent. You will be saved. You will be brought forth it's a beautiful promise and so god is highlighting his own faithfulness his own dependability and in the very next section in verse 28 god will even tell them the name of the man who will deliver them from exile his name is cyrus he would be the instrument of god to save israel from exile so what is mary referring to exile is already done that that's over with In referring to God's help for his servant Israel, alluding to verse 21, it reminds us that God's help for Israel was not just a past event when he brought them back from exile. How do we know this? Because his rescue from exile was temporary. Because of their rebellion, God decimated the nation of Israel once again in AD 70 when Rome destroyed Jerusalem and obliterated the whole nation, what is Mary saying that he's brought forth help for his servant Israel? She's saying he's not finished yet. God is not done with Israel. The Abrahamic covenant is still alive. Israel is still alive. And you only have to pretty much read the entire book of Isaiah to see Israel's future redemption, which saturates that book. Now, yes, Israel is the nation that would ultimately reject Christ but how did the church of Jesus Christ, of which you were a part, how did the church of Jesus Christ begin? Through the Holy Spirit indwelling salvation of 3,000 Jews on the day of Pentecost because God was not done with Israel as being the conduit through which the entire world would be blessed. In fact, Jews from all over the world would bring the gospel back to their people. And what is the gospel news that they would bring Well, this brings us to our fourth theme in the Christmas songs, theme of salvation, theme of salvation. Turn with me back to Luke chapter one. Our English word salvation means rescue, means redemption, means deliverance. Luke chapter one, verse 71 in Zechariah's song. Father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit. In verse 71, he continues in his song that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. That, that's the basic idea of Messiah coming to rescue Israel from human enemies. That's true, but Jesus won't do that on his first visit. That's an agenda for a later time. What we do see in these three songs is, all, is just a mini, mini lesson in soteriology study of salvation that Jesus didn't come to earth just to save a nation as a whole that's true and he didn't do that the first time he came to save individuals from their greatest enemy your greatest enemy my greatest enemy and that is the enemy of sin look at chapter 1 verse 47 
Mary is speaking, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. The Roman Catholic vision of Mary, the mother of Jesus, is that she was given the capacity to never sin when the angel Gabriel came and proclaimed to her and called her, O favored one, or more traditionally, full of grace. The Catholic idea of Mary being what they call the mediatrix or co-redemptrix of salvation it isn't part of official Catholic doctrine that I've been able to discover, but it is basically the cultural belief of, of Roman Catholicism everywhere. And the basic idea is that God collaborated with Mary and as a team effort, they are now providing salvation to the world. And that team effort is Christ. And so to make her a co-redemptrix, she has to be sinless. And so they have quite a way of moving around logic and moving around sound theology to get her to that point. But Mary didn't think that. What did Mary think? She thought, I need a savior. So she rejoices in God, her savior. She's not just rejoicing because she's the mother of Jesus. She's rejoicing because the savior is coming. Who not only saves Israel, but saves her. She goes on to describe the character of one who's been saved by God, the character of one who's been set apart for salvation. In verse 50, and his mercy is for those who fear him. The saved are those for whom God creates a fear, an internal reality of salvation, not just intellectual assent. Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, he continues describing the character of one who's been saved by God. Chapter 1, verse 68, that God has visited and redeemed his people, that he's purchased us, he's paid a price. It's a Greek word that means to ransom them, to purchase something back that you used to previously own. And so the one who has been saved fears God, he's been ransomed, purchased, and as a result, another character quality of one who's been set apart, one who's been saved, he's forgiven. Verse 77, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. By the way, where does knowledge of salvation come from according to this? The knowledge that you have a need for a savior to ransom you and to forgive you. Verse 77 says knowledge of salvation is given. It is a gift. It's not figured out. It's not deduced. It's not somehow... uh, a conclusion of logical arguments. It is simply the knowledge of God and your need for salvation given to you by God. But this salvation that's come is so centrally focused on, so centered on Christ that Simeon, in his song, he actually uses salvation as a synonym for Jesus. Jesus and salvation as equal parts here. Look at Luke chapter 2, verse 30. Remember, he's holding Jesus. He's looking at Jesus. He's got him in his arms. And he says in verse 34, my eyes have seen your salvation. Seen your salvation. Zechariah describes his salvation in a very interesting fashion. Back in chapter one, verse 69. And has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of of his servant David. Now, where does Zechariah get this idea of the horn of salvation? Well, this is when your bookmark comes in handy because I need to take you to Psalm 18. Look with me at Psalm 18. Now, the superscript, the little words at the very beginning of the psalm, they are part of the inspired text. They're not added by your Bible's publisher. It tells us that this is a celebratory psalm of King David when he's been delivered by God from his enemies. And in his celebration, God describes the, or David rather, describes the, the saving character of God in very military terms, which makes sense. David is a military man. And so he says in verse one, I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. My God, my rock, in whom I take refuge, my shield, and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. God is like a fortress carved out of rock. It's the same word used to describe Masada, by the way. It's a shield. He's a shield. He's a stronghold. Now, all of those things make sense to us. We could almost get pencil and paper and draw a a shield. We could draw a stronghold, a fortress. But then David calls God the horn of my salvation. That's less familiar to us. 
horn is obviously taken from the animal world. As much as I want it to be the trumpet of salvation, that's not it. It is the horn, the horn of an animal, an aggressive, powerful weapon used by an animal. But horn came to symbolize those who have power. Daniel chapter 7 and 8 pictures great earthly kings as horns. Zechariah 1, 18 through 21, great nations who have strength and influence are, are seen as four horns who have shattered Judah and Israel in the judgment of God. And so when David describes God as the horn of salvation, what's he speaking of? He's speaking of, of the great power and the force and the strength that it takes to save As a matter of fact, David goes on to picture all the supernatural means that God uses to save his people. And he gives this almost behind-the-scenes look at an invisible reality, the invisible activity in the spirit realm. And we see this strength of God beginning in verse 7. Then the earth reeled and rocked. The foundations also of the mountains trembled and quaked because he was angry. Smoke went up from his nostrils and devouring fire from his mouth. Glowing coals flamed forth from him. He bowed the heavens and came down. Thick darkness was under his feet. He rode on the cherub and flew. He came swiftly on the wings of the wind. He made darkness his covering, his canopy all around him. Thick clouds dark with water. Out of the brightness before him, hailstones and coals of fire broke through his clouds. The Lord also thundered in the heavens, and the Most High uttered his voice, hailstones and coals of fire. And he sent out his arrows and scattered them. He flashed forth lightnings and routed them. Then the channels of the sea were seen, and the foundations of the world were laid bare. At your rebuke, O Lord, at the blast of the breath of your nostrils." He sent from on high. He took me. He drew me out of many waters. He rescued me from my strong enemy and from those who hated me, for they were too mighty for me. They confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my support. He brought me out into a broad place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. Listen, that's better than any superhero movie ever made. The -the behind-the-scenes supernatural activity of God to save. But David is describing God, the powerful Savior, who is the horn of his salvation. Who is Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, describing? Luke 169, you don't have to turn back there yet. God has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. The horn of salvation, the strength of the Lord, the power to save, the might behind salvation is a descendant of David. Jesus Christ, the same horn of salvation who so magnificently saves in Psalm 18. By the way, the horn of salvation really came to be known not just as the power of a nation, but the power of a king. Psalm 148, verse 14, the coming of the Messiah is called a horn for his people. Ezekiel 29, 21, the coming Messiah is called the horn who will spring up for the house of Israel. And so when you read Psalm 18, the horn of my salvation who saved David. We see him embodied in the person of Jesus Christ. And so Simeon also, he refers to Christ as a, as a powerful Savior. Turn back with me to Luke chapter 2. You're doing really well with your turning back and forth here. Luke chapter 2, verse 30. Simeon refers to Christ as a powerful Savior. Verse 29, now, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation. This describes the sheer, raw power of God in salvation. Why is this? Well, because we're pointed back to the Old Testament. Luke 2, verse 30 is reminiscent of Isaiah 52, verse 10. You don't have to turn there. Listen to this. The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of the nations and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. Just as Simeon said, my eyes have seen your salvation. There isn't a lot of secret imagery here. The Lord has bared the whole, the, the, bared his arm of salvation. What is that? That's like rolling up your sleeves to show that my muscle is bigger than yours. That he saves with power. I think it's so important for us to remember that to save you from your sin took supernatural divine power on the level of a Psalm 18 invasion. 
And what's the key of this power? The key of the power that God has given is the gospel. The good news that a savior, a powerful, powerful savior has come to redeem you, to pay the ransom that you owe to God for your sin, to be the substitute for you on the cross. Romans 1.16 tells us, I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is what? The power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Listen, this isn't some theoretical or intellectual assent. It is personal and it is faith that is appropriated individually. Zechariah confirms this. Look at Luke chapter 1, verse 77. To give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. The salvation isn't something given theoretically. It's not something given generally. It's something given individually. It is an inward appropriation of salvation by faith as a result of the divine gift of grace. Individual forgiveness, individual washing away, individual removal of guilt. It is individual and it took power. What kind of power did it take? The Bible says it took resurrection power because you were dead in your trespasses and sins and had to be literally in your spirit raised from the dead in order to even just believe. That's power. In a very real sense, every one of you who know Christ as your Savior has already experienced your first resurrection. And that is the resurrection of your spirit to be able to believe. Well, our Christmas songs explain the themes of the glory of God, the Abrahamic covenant, Israel, salvation. Let's look at the fifth one, the faithfulness of God. The faithfulness of God. Mary extols the faithfulness of God to bring Messiah. Verse 50 of Luke chapter 1. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He's faithful Verse 54, he has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers. He's faithful. Simeon's entire song is a celebration of the faithfulness of God to bring the one promised. Chapter 2, verse 29, Lord, now you're letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, that's faithfulness. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that's faithfulness. That you have prepared, that's faithfulness. In the presence of all peoples, that's faithfulness. He's faithful, faithful, faithful. But the one that gets the most specific, though, is Zechariah. In chapter 1, verse 76. He's speaking here of his coming son, John, who would be the final prophet to proclaim the Messiah, the greatest of all the prophets, according to Jesus, because he's the forerunner. In, in John chapter 1, verse 76 and you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways. He's the one who literally is the last prophet of God, the last Old Testament prophet, we might say, because he doesn't just tell about Jesus. He gets to watch down the road and see him walking towards him and point and say, there is the Lamb of God who's come to save the world. That makes him the greatest prophet ever. But why are Mary... And Simeon, Zechariah, so thrilled. They're thrilled because God is showing that he keeps his promises. Many, many promises. Chapter 1, verse 70 in Zechariah's song, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from old. Now, people will say, well, the Old Testament, you know, maybe it talks about Jesus once or twice, maybe, but how many promises are we talking about here? You know, in the book of Isaiah alone, which is just saturated with Messiah, there's over 100 prophecies just in Isaiah. Every one of them demonstrated as fulfilled in the New Testament. We have that he shall teach all nations. The Messiah will judge among the nations. We have that he is the glory of God that Isaiah saw in Isaiah 6. We have that Jesus would be the one sent by God. That Messiah would tell parables that would fall on deaf ears that people would be blinded to Christ and deaf to his words, that he would be born of a virgin, that he would be Emmanuel, God with us, that he would be a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. We, we understand from Isaiah that his ministry would begin in Galilee. We know that he would be human, a child born. He would be deity, a son given. He would be declared to be the son of God with power. He would be called the Wonderful Counselor. He would be called the Mighty God. He would be called the Everlasting Father. He would be called the Prince of Peace. All of this fulfilled in the New Testament. 
He would be the one to establish an everlasting kingdom. His character is that of justice. There would be no end to his government, no end to his throne, no end to the peace that he'll bring. He would be a rod from Jesse. He would be the son of Jesse. He would be anointed by the Spirit of God. He would be that one who is wise, who is knowledgeable. He would know the thoughts of men. He would judge completely in righteousness. He would judge with the sword of his mouth. His very words are destructive judgments. He would have the character of being righteous and faithful. We know from Isaiah, as fulfilled in the New Testament, that Gentiles would seek after him. He would be the one who is ultimately given all authority to govern. He is the one who would conquer death. He is the one who has the power of resurrection. He is the Messiah who is called the precious cornerstone. He's called the sure foundation. He would expose all hypocritical surface obedience to his word. He's the one who would confound the wise by his word. He would be called a refuge, a hiding place. He would be the one to come and to save all who would believe in him. He would be the one to have a ministry of miracles. He would be preceded by a forerunner. He would be the one that in him we behold God, both in Isaiah and in the gospels. He would be the one to reward the faithful. He would be called a shepherd, the one who is the compassionate life giver. He is called the servant, a faithful patient humble redeemer he would be called meek and lowly he would bring hope to the hopeless nations would wait on his teaching he is called the light of salvation to the gentiles he has a worldwide compassion he would open the blind eyes he would open the deaf ears he is the only savior he would send the spirit of god at a later time he would be called lord he would be called savior called judge he would declare things that are not yet done he would be called the first called the last he would become as a teacher he would be called all the way from the womb he would be a servant from the womb he promises to restore israel he is the salvation of israel he's the light of the gentiles he's the salvation of the ends of the earth he would be called despised of all nations darkness would come at his humiliation he would be called the learned teacher for the weary he would be called the servant bound willingly to his obedience he would give his back to those who would strike him he would give his face to have his beard pulled out he would be spit upon he would preach the gospel upon mountaintops he would be a servant who would ultimately be exalted the servant would be shockingly abused he would startle nations by his message his blood would sprinkle many nations his own people would not believe in him the appearance of him as a human would be just an ordinary man who fades right into normal mankind he would be despised he would be rejected he would have great sorrow great grief men would hide from being associated with him he would heal countless people he would thought to be cursed by god he would bear the penalty for mankind's iniquity His sacrifice would provide peace between God and man. His sacrifice would heal us of our sin. His sacrifice would be that of a sin bearer for all of mankind. It would be God's will that he bear sin for all mankind. He would be oppressed. He would be afflicted. He would be silent and not answer his accusers. He would be called the sacrificial lamb. He would be confined. He would be persecuted. He would be beaten. He would be judged. He would be killed. He would die for the sins of the whole world. He would be buried in the rich man's grave. He would be innocent because he'd done no violence. There's no deceit found in his mouth. God's will is that he would die for mankind. He would be an offering for sin. He would be resurrected and he will live forever. He would prosper eventually. God would fully be satisfied with his suffering. God's servant would justify all who would believe in him. He would be the sin bearer for all who would believe in him. He would be exalted and lifted up by God because of his sacrifice. He would give up his life to save mankind. He would be numbered with the transgressors. He would intercede to God on your behalf and he would be resurrected by God to be the ultimate witness to the gospel. He is a leader. He is a commander. God would glorify him. Mediation between man and God is possible only through him. He would come to provide salvation. He would come to Zion, to the specific city of Jerusalem as a redeemer. He would show light to the Gentiles, to the whole nations. The spirit of God would be upon him. He would preach the good news and he would provide freedom from the bondage of sin. And that's just Isaiah. I don't have time to do Jeremiah, (laughs) Moses, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Micah, Zechariah, the prophet, Zephaniah, Malachi. 
Listen, the latest Star Wars movie, which was just released this week, released its official trailer for the movie just months ago. God began releasing his promises of Messiah 6,000 years ago. Who keeps a 6,000-year-old promise? Wait a minute. Ephesians 4 says we were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. That's understandable human language for eternity past. So the real question is, who keeps a promise that is eternal? A faithful God does. See, when the Apostle Paul says in Galatians 4, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. That's a big deal. That is a big deal. This has been a long time coming. The faithfulness of God manifested in Christ. Well, our Christmas songs explain the themes of the glory of God, the Abrahamic covenant, Israel, salvation, faithfulness of God. And I think we have time. We'll do one more. Gentiles. The Gentiles. This is one of my favorites because I are one. We had no hope whatsoever. Did Christ come to just Israel? Well, there are at least three Jews who say no. Mary, Zechariah, and Simeon. Mary's reference is a little veiled and we need some help from the Apostle Paul to fully unpack it. But there is nonetheless uh, this relationship between Gentiles and, and Christ as we hold to establish in theology from the whole counsel of God. So we can look at Luke chapter 1, verse 55. As he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. The question is, who is the offspring of Abraham? Well, obviously it's the ethnic Jew, but will all ethnic Jews be partakers in the Abrahamic covenant as his offspring forever? No. Romans 9 verse 6 says, It is not as though the word of God has failed, for all, not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. So no, it can't be just ethnic Jews. But the Apostle Paul helps us understand that Abraham has not only biological children, but adopted children. And who are they? Just to give you a little background, you don't have to turn here, but the Galatian Christians were, they were falling into the trap of trying to be Jewish before they could be Christians. They were trying to prescribe obedience to the law as step one toward salvation. In other words, being Jewish was the path to being saved. And there was kind of an implicit boast that they had, we are sons of Abraham. And that's what makes us saved. And so Paul answers them, In Galatians 3, beginning of verse 7, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. In Galatians 3, 14, Paul continues, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. I think it's interesting that for one moment, Paul, the Jew of all Jews, says we when talking about Gentiles. But here's the linchpin conclusion. Galatians 3.29, And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring. Heirs according to the promise. Now this does not negate a distinction between Jew and Gentile. There is no distinction in regards to how a Jew and a Gentile are saved, but there is a distinction in that God has used Israel to be the conduit through which salvation comes to the Gentile. Zechariah acknowledges that Christ's salvation is offered to the Gentile. Chapter 1, verse 79. To give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. And guess where Zechariah is likely drawing this from? You're probably already there. Isaiah. Go with me to Isaiah chapter 8. Isaiah chapter 8. It's a passage you're already familiar with. The end of Isaiah chapter 8 pictures a, a sinking into spiritual darkness of Israel, and they're sinking lower and lower and lower. In chapter 8, verse 22. And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. And so you you end chapter 8 on just this hopeless note. And if we could liken this to a a piece of music, new music begins and it's quiet. And it plays this little melody. Verse 1, But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. 
That's Galilee. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations, literally Galilee of the Gentiles. Where was Jesus raised? He was raised in Galilee. There were Jews there, obviously, but there were many Gentiles as well. And here's where we can almost hear Zechariah's song. In verse 2, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. And the text begins to intensify. The song begins to crescendo. In verse 3, you have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. And now we're going to get this picture of this conquering warrior, this strong king who comes and leaves, leaves no enemy untouched. Verse 4, for the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor you have broken is on the day of Midian for every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. What is this? This is a conquering king coming to save Israel, coming to save Gentile nations. And we have this picture of the end of a battle when they're burning the clothes and burning the bodies of all the dead enemies of Christ. And the music reaches this fever pitch and all of a sudden it drops down. See, the conquering king isn't coming yet, but the baby king is. In verse six, for to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. Jesus didn't come just to the Jews. He came to the Gentiles. Mary and Zechariah and Simeon says so. Where does Simeon say that? Back in Luke 2, let me show you briefly. In fact, Simeon does something unprecedented. He lets the Gentiles go first. Luke 2, verse 32, and you can hear Isaiah 9 in here. A light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. Simeon is more modern in his eschatology because right now the light of salvation is to the Gentile and later it will be to the Jew once again. The birth of Christ is laden with significance. It's laden with importance which directly impacts you and me. So far in our songs, our Christmas songs explain the themes of the glory of God, the Abrahamic covenant, Israel, salvation, the faithfulness of God and Gentiles. And listen, every one of those themes has personal implications for you. Every single one. Let me go through them. First, Christ came to reveal the glory of God and you get to partake in the glory of God only through Christ. There is no other way. You either get the glory of God or you get the judgment of God and it'll be through Christ that you receive the glory of God. Second, Christ came to continue the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant and it is the Abrahamic covenant which guarantees your participation in the future kingdom. It is God's promise that he made 4,000 years ago to a man that none of us have ever met. There's a reason that you're here right now at this moment. Third, Christ came as the key to God's plan to eventually save Israel. Israel is the nation, the funnel of God's redemptive plan to you. Never be one of those that says the Old Testament has no relevance. You should weep over the Old Testament because it's through Israel that you're here. Fourth, God came as the ultimate offerer of God. Christ came, rather, as the ultimate offerer of God's salvation. He is the only means by which you will enter the kingdom of God. There is no other way. There is no other truth. There is no other life. Only Christ. Fifth, Christ came as the proof of the faithfulness of God. The faithfulness of God to fulfill his own word, which gives you confidence that he who began a good work in you is what? Faithful to complete it. And finally, Christ came not just to give his beloved Israel salvation, but to send us out to Judea and Samaria, to the ends of the earth, and even as far as Bakersfield, California. He came to the saved people from every tribe, every tongue, every nation. He came to the Gentiles. Oh, these songs are so instructive for us. They're so saturated in the truths of the kingdom of God. My, my prayer for you as I've been studying this and praying for you my prayer for you is that the Christmas season doesn't just remind you of the birth of Christ, but reminds you that 
all of the ramifications that are saturated in his birth beyond Bethlehem, beyond the manger, and into the future, all of those things began not in a manger. They began in eternity past in the mind of God. And this is really just a marker. Christmas time doesn't celebrate the end of God's redemptive plan. It really just celebrates part two, the really the beginning when Christ came. And so my hope and prayer for you is that the Christmas season takes you beyond the birth of Christ and into his glorious context of his whole plan. Let's pray and thank him for his plan. Our Father, we come to you now so grateful as Gentiles that you would think of us that 6,000 years after a promised Savior, the promise you gave of the seed of woman who would crush the head of the serpent, 4,000 years after a promise you made to Abraham that all the nations of the earth would be blessed, all the families of the earth would be blessed through the singular seed from Abraham's body. The promise that Christ gave 2,000 years ago that all who are his, he will not lose one. And the promise that we hold in our own heart from Scripture that all who have the Spirit of Christ are in Christ and he will never let us go. And so, Lord, quite literally, our entire future, our entire destiny is dependent on your faithfulness. And in these three songs of Mary and Zechariah and Simeon, we see the glorious evidence that you are a covenant-keeping God. You are a faithful God, and you will be faithful to us. And that for us, Christmas time is not just a celebration to remember the birth of Christ, it's to remember Christ our Savior. Because there will be a day when we no longer have the strength to celebrate Christmas. We no longer have the strength to even get out of bed. And there will be a moment when we no longer have the strength to breathe. We no longer have the strength for our heart to beat even one more time. And in that moment, all the promises of God through Christ manifested in our lives must come to fruition. Otherwise, we are doomed. But you are a God who keeps promises. You are a God who through Christ has snatched us out of the fires of hell and out of the doom of judgment. And for that we give you thanks. For that we give you honor. That this Christmas season we remember not just the birth of Christ but all the context all around it. All that he did and continues to do to powerfully save. And we look forward to a day when Jesus returns again not as a baby in a manger but as a mighty warrior who will judge all who would reject him and will bring into glory all who have received him. What a day that will be. Now that will be Christmas. And we look forward to this. In Christ's name we pray, amen.